Well, thank you for joining us for today's Alt Talk on the investment case for Bitcoin, featuring Alex Tapscott, Managing Director of the Digital Assets Group at Nine Point Partners, along with Tyler and Cameron Winklevoss, the founders of Winklevoss Capital Management and of Gemini Trust, a leading digital currency exchange and custodian. The sponsor of today's event is Nine Point. Nine Point manages unique alternative investment solutions that offer investors the benefits of better diversification. In January, Nine Point Partners launched the Bitcoin Trust, a ticker symbol BITC.U and BITC.UN, and the largest IPO of its kind in Canadian history. The Bitcoin Trust offers secure, convenient, and cost-effective exposure to Bitcoin. The Bitcoin Trust currently trades at a discount to its net asset value, but following its planned conversion to an ETF in and around May, it's expected to trade at net asset value like other ETFs. If you're interested in getting exposure to Bitcoin, now is a good time to consider the Nine Point Bitcoin Trust. You can find out more about the Nine Point Bitcoin Trust at ninepoint.com. First of all, gentlemen, uh, great having you with us. It's a great day to be here talking about Bitcoin. Sure is. Great now, before be we get started, gentlemen, who among us here is bidding on Jack Dorsey's first ever tweet as an NFT? Who's putting the kids' college fund in non-fungible tokens? <laughs> Jack's already raised, what, two and a half million. Cameron, Tyler, you guys have success with digital artwork NTFs. Uh, can you explain it in a sentence? And, and are you in on this? Yeah, basically, sure. um, all, of the, all of the collecting we did as, as children, let's say, baseball cards, comic books, art and collectibles, now we have the technology to put them on the blockchain and make them scarce. So a picture that's digital, there can actually only be one of one of them in the world on the blockchain. So supply and demand comes to digital art and collectibles. And that's what is the non-fungible token or NFT movement. And that's the phenomenon we're seeing right now. Yeah, if you think that uh, Bitcoin basically brought scarcity to digital money and NFTs are bringing scarcity to, to digital art. Uh, okay, but it doesn't sound like you're in on uh, basically what is an autograph for Jack Dorsey's first tweet. So maybe we ought to move on to the big picture issue of the day. What do you say? Sure. Okay. Sure. Uh, Bitcoin is the new digital gold. Alex, you know, you and I discussed on the Alt Thinking podcast, it's fascinating to learn that, that money goes through an innovation cycle every 100 years. Yeah, it's true. Money is one of humanity's greatest and most enduring inventions, and it's taken many forms over the years. It's evolved from cowrie shells to precious metals to uh, bank notes to bank balances, and now money is taking another great leap forward. It's becoming digital. Now, these uh, epochs for money generally last longer than a human lifetime, so we tend to think of the system that we're in as something that's always been there. Uh, but in our case, the system that we currently live in, where um, fiat currencies issued by governments, central banks, and not backed by any you know, particular commodity, is only around 50 years old. So this new evolution to uh, what I think is the next phase of digital money has actually happened relatively quickly. And I think um, it was Cameron who articulated it, that Bitcoin brought digital uh, scarcity uh, to money. And that's a very important um, statement because you know, the internet itself is a very powerful tool that allows us to share information, but it's not actually good for, for money or other assets, things that require scarcity. You know, if I send a PowerPoint presentation or an email to one person, I can send it to many people. It's okay if it's information, but it's not very helpful if that's supposed to be money or assets. So the internet evolved, and as it did, uh, so did large intermediaries who captured a lot of the value. Bitcoin breaks that uh, cycle, and uh, the underlying blockchain has enabled not just the opportunity to create money for the internet, but also a new era of uh, digital assets. So basically anything you can think of, whether it's a stock or a bond or a title or a deed or intellectual property or a piece of artwork or even a vote in an election can be moved, stored and managed peer to peer uh, by harnessing this underlying technology. So in many respects, this is not only the next era of money, but it's the next era of the internet, which is why it's obviously so exciting. Cameron, the metaphor of Bitcoin as the new gold is multifaceted. Let's start by looking at it from the gold rush perspective. Uh, then let's move on to it as a store of value versus investment. What are we in Bitcoin's development? What stage of that gold rush are we at? 
Well, we're definitely in the emergent store of value stage. So Bitcoin crossed a trillion dollars worth of value uh, this past month. So, but that, which is, which is great, but it still is about uh, one-tenth of gold's value. So it still has its work cut out for it, but that's literally a trillion dollars of value that's been created um, in about a decade. So the adoption has been, an uptake is, is accelerating in our opinion, and the institutionalization of this asset has just started. It was very much an individual um, phenomenon for the first 10 years, um, especially when we started investing in the Wild West days and in the 2012, 2013 time time frame. Um, and today we have funds like Nine Point that give people access to this digital gold, which is fascinating to sort of see the development. But we're still in the emergent stage. Um, Tal and I wrote a thought piece on um, why we think Bitcoin will be $500,000 a coin within the next decade. And it's a pretty simple framework. We basically look at the value of gold and then back uh, the, into the price of Bitcoin based on Bitcoin being a $9 trillion asset. Um, and so we, we predict about a 10x from here um, as a starting point for the digital gold uh, thesis, but we actually think it could, could even go, go further than that. Yeah, and just to piggyback off on that, um, the reason the comparison to gold is really the characteristics of Bitcoin and gold. Gold is scarce. Bitcoin is actually fixed in supply. Gold is kind of portable, but Bitcoin you can send around like e email. You can divide gold or smelt it down, but you can actually divide a Bitcoin into 100 million pieces. So all of the things that we think make gold valuable, Bitcoin has those uh, characteristics, but is actually superior across the board. So we look at it as gold 2.0, but it's much more than just a better version of precious metal. It's an open source living organism network. Um, so the small bull case, like Cameron said, is about a 10x from here if the, if the market cap's 10, a, a trillion and above ground gold is nine or 10 trillion. That's sort of the conservative case is 500,000 uh, a Bitcoin. But I think because it's open source, because it's a network, because it's the Internet of money, it's the greatest social network of all. It actually could be appreciate much more. But what, though, as a hedge against inflation, like the traditional stores of value, like gold, uh, oil, too? Didn't you write a, a thesis that basically is around the idea of using this as a hedge against inflation because the U.S. Federal Reserve has been you know, spending and printing money like a drunken sailor? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and we actually use that, that term. Um, <laughs> sorry, Todd, I didn't mean to... To, to cut you off there, right, but um, right. yeah, very much so. Look, if this was the 1970s, the classic that would be gold, right? To hedge against inflation. And today we have we have Bitcoin, which we think is better than gold, uh, better at being gold than gold itself. Um, and so you have this opportunity to invest in sort of this future of money to protect yourself against inflation and also this future upside of a network that is emerging. So it's a really, really uh, interesting trade. And a lot of investors and institutions are seeing that benefit. And I think that's what's driving a lot of the the price appreciation over the past um, nine months is, is the trillions and trillions of dollars um, being printed into the economy. We've got 1.9 trillion more in the US coming very soon. Um, and, and Bitcoin is the only asset in the galaxy or observable universe that where the supply uh, does not increase with demand. It is truly fixed at 21 million Bitcoin. It is divisible, so you can buy as little, you know, $5 worth of Bitcoin. You don't have to buy a full Bitcoin. Um, but Demand will not increase the supply, which is not true for gold. Gold is scarce, but actually two-thirds of above-ground gold has been mined since the 1950s. So if energy prices decrease or technology gets better, look at, look at oil, right? Um, the U.S. is now a net exporter of oil, and there is this belief that we had hit peak oil uh, in the 2000s, and then fracking technology came along, and all of a sudden we're we're swimming in in, in plentiful oil uh, in the U.S. and and I think the same can be true of of gold. It is not fixed like Bitcoin, and that is another sort 
sort of aha moment that I think people are really, uh, it's resonating with folks who are determining how do I best protect against this inflation and hedge against it. Now, the cryptocurrency, uh, Alex, as you and I have been discussing, was born out of the great financial crisis of 2008 at a time when trust in the global financial system had collapsed. There has been some mistrust of Bitcoin as well. You know, Tom Neufeld, who's watching us right now, pointed out that he lost uh, some Bitcoin uh, back in 2013 or, or so. Um, how do we overcome this concern about trust? Is there still work to do here? So there's definitely question. Oh, sorry, I'll, I'll answer this one and then you guys can, can hop in. Um, just to respond quickly to, to some of the comments that Cameron and, and Tyler made, um, that the idea of Bitcoin is having sort of two sides. One as having all of these properties that are similar to gold, but in certain ways improving on gold, but also the fact that it's an open source um, software and a social network means that um, it, its behavior as an asset has sort of unique properties. It doesn't move in lockstep with gold, um, nor does it move in lockstep with, with other financial assets. It's a completely uncorrelated asset based on our analysis and others, um, which is interesting because at, on one side, it is both a hard asset independent from government control, something that allows you to store value in times of inflation, but also longer term, a play on uh, adoption of new technology, and that technology being Bitcoin and digital assets. You know, the more we move online, the more commerce happens online, the more digital assets become uh, familiar to people, the more demand there will be for Bitcoin. So it has these two very powerful drivers, which means that it can perform well in almost any uh, macro environment, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, to, your, to your question specifically, yeah, it's true. The um, the uh, the Bitcoin network was launched in the um, aftermath of the greatest financial crisis, you know, of the last uh, 80 years. And um, I think it was, and if you read Satoshi, the author, author's uh, writings on the subject, they will say that um, part of it was a rebuke of the way the system had been run uh, till that time. And that the idea of creating a, uh, a value layer for the internet that would allow people to move and store money peer to peer was a way to um, prevent yourself from being harmed by the misuse or, or bad actions of banks and other intermediaries. Um, but the corollary to that is that there is a certain level of individual agency and individual responsibility that came, especially in the early days, with owning uh, Bitcoin. You know, the underlying, the, the software solutions, the exchanges and wallets and so forth that um, enabled you to hold Bitcoin in a secure and convenient way were pretty immature. And I think it was in that environment that actually Gemini um, was launched and also in the same environment where uh, we, uh, my, my father Don and I wrote Blockchain Revolution, which came out in 2016. Um, there is obviously a lot of value to the idea of being able to hold and custody your own assets, but there's also a lot of value in the convenience of many trappings of the financial system. And so to me, that's why some of the most exciting area of growth in this industry is in uh, building those bridges uh, and tunnels and you know connections to the way people invest and, and how they store their money today and the way I think they will in the future. And I think that um, you know what we're doing at Nine Point is a small version of that right now. We've just launched our digital asset group, but it's something that Cameron and Tyler have been uh, doing for the better part of a decade. So with that, I'll, I'll let them maybe respond to the question as well. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, um, the risks that we sort of encountered in 2012 buying Bitcoin and then storing it really informed us in the need for sort of regulated, safe, reliable, and simple infrastructure and ways to onboard into crypto if we were going to bring this amazing technology and promise uh, mainstream and not some sort of niche technology um, world. And so we, we power the nine point fund. Um, we offer the custody services for that and a number of other funds um, in Canada and in the US. And so we've really built Gemini, which is regulated as a New York trust company to build infrastructure that's safe and secure and really help demystify a lot of the the um, past sort of um, trust breaches that that have happened in crypto through the years, um, and and really inject trust and safety into the asset class. That's really the mission of Gemini is to build safety and trust and empower both individuals as well as funds 
and service providers to then provide great products to their customers like the nine point fund. Yeah, that's a well, well said Cameron. Um, Brust is our biggest priority building and earning that. And we do that by doing what we say we're going to do, but also being regulated by the New York DFS, uh, the bank regulator in New York, in providing these custodial services, but also execution service and other services to funds like Nine Point. Uh, we have a thing called Gemini Fund Solutions, which is a full suite of funds services for funds. We've also been helping uh, companies put Bitcoin on their balance sheet and invest their treasury capital. So. We thought institutional infrastructure was super important because our early days in Bitcoin in 2012 were actually buying a lot of Bitcoin on Mt. Gox. And for those of you that know Mt. Gox in the history, it famously imploded or exploded, was, was hacked in, in 2014. So that really informed us of what needed to change. We needed to build something onshore in the US, go in the front door with the regulators, get a license, become regulated. We have bank examiners who come into our offices for um, over a month uh, each year to do that. We have audited, we're SOC 2 uh, type 2 compliant, SOC 1 type 2 compliant, and we do a lot of security penetration tests. And right now, uh, Gemini custodies approximately maybe uh, $20 billion of value in crypto without ever an incident. So we've been we've been really focused on, on building and maintaining that trust so we can be a bridge for institutional money to come from uh, legacy uh, finance and into this new world of, of cryptocurrency. So then let's focus on what gives Bitcoin its value. Currency trading itself relies on supply and demand. I, I can understand the demand side of the equation. As a matter of fact, I think Glenn Dawson was curious about your point that was made earlier about the maximum amount of Bitcoin that exists in its entirety. Uh, we should probably also clarify that Bitcoin does get released over time into the market, but does that really affect the supply and demand impact on value? Um, yes, it does. So maybe just um, a quick 101 on, on how the, all this stuff works. So. Um, Transactions are constantly happening on the Bitcoin network. Uh, every so often, they are batched together into a thing called a block, which gets broadcast to the nodes in the network. Um, those uh, nodes, some of those nodes are, are known as miners, not like little people miners, like pickaxe miners. And these pickaxe miners use big computing resources to basically validate that the transactions in each block are accurate. And they get rewarded for doing that. So that's what you're referring to. They commit all this computing power because they have an opportunity to win new Bitcoin, which gets created. And this process of mining is where all of the supply of Bitcoin has come from over time. Today, there are 18.5 million Bitcoin in circulation. Based on the, uh, the way in which the Bitcoin network is designed, the current growth curve, there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. The rate of inflation early on was uh, fairly high. But every a few years, um, on a predetermined schedule, the amount of new Bitcoin that gets created via this process gets cut in half. The most recent example of that was in the spring of last year. And that's significant because not only is Bitcoin uh, scarce in terms of we know there's a known number of Bitcoin, there's a known total supply of Bitcoin, but the rate of growth is actually decelerating. And that's very important, and it's important to tie that to something um, that we heard earlier, which is that there is no impact, um, there's nothing that can change that rate of growth. So the price of Bitcoin could go from 50,000 to 500,000, and it doesn't make uh, any difference to the supply growth. That's different from other assets. You know, we heard about uh, gold. It's true that technology can make it easier to pull gold out of the ground. It's also just as true that if the price of gold were to go up, it would mean that gold in the ground is now affordable to mine using current technology. So the, the supply is completely inelastic for Bitcoin. And that does have a big impact. And I'll give you an example. In the fall of last year, PayPal, one of dozens of large corporations, which has stepped up in a huge way to not only um, you know, embrace Bitcoin, but to offer Bitcoin services and capabilities to customers, uh, allowed for the first time some of its users to buy Bitcoin. 
When that happened, according to some estimates, that was enough to soak up all the new Bitcoin that was created from the mining process. So that's one big firm of dozens that are currently doing it. And there are still hundreds or thousands of big companies who have yet to embrace it in a material way. So with when you have a fixed supply and a decreasing rate of growth and a growing uh, level of demand, obviously that creates a huge imbalance. And that's what we've seen the price increase so much. Any other thoughts, gentlemen? Yeah, those are all great, great points. I mean, we truly don't know the supply of gold. We have ideas, and and there's trillions of dollars of gold in the you know flying around on asteroids um, in our galaxy, and and it's not crazy to think that Elon Musk will get up there at some point and start harvesting it um, within the next you know 20, 20 or thirty years. Um, it sounds kind of sci-fi today. But we truly don't know uh, what that supply is, and and Bitcoin is deterministic, and we know the supply element, and then of course there's the, the demand element, which is a function of adoption and a lot of the stuff that's been happening, and that's obviously increasing, especially in in the backdrop of what's going on with the the U.S. dollar money printing. So then what would bring down the price of Bitcoin if the demand is there and the supply is consistent? Well, I'll, I'll answer it one way, which is we've heard a couple questions about volatility from the audience. And I think this is a related kind of concept, right? So people say, well, how can you, um, you know, how can something replace gold if it's more, if it's measure of, on a measure of volatility, it's more volatile than gold. And it's true that today, Bitcoin is more volatile than gold and it's more volatile than other asset classes, though I'll add it's less volatile than other assets. Uh, the measure of volatility for Bitcoin the past couple of months has been way lower than it was for Shopify, Peloton, Tesla, and other large companies. So that's a useful distinction. Um, but volatility is not inherently a bad thing. Um, you know, we've, we've spoken a little bit about the 1970s and how gold was the thing to do back then. And it's true, with no um, peg to an underlying commodity, we had to go through this period of price discovery to figure out what that commodity was actually worth. And in that period of time, the, the 1970s and early 80s, the price of gold went up tremendously, but it also uh, was extremely volatile. So, you know, at the time you could have said, well, the measure of volatility is a lot higher for, for gold than it is for other asset classes. Maybe this isn't the store of value that that I hoped it would be. Of course, you know, volatility is not, doesn't always mean volatility to the downside. It can just as easily mean volatility to the upside. And that's been the story for Bitcoin for most of its existence. So, you know, again, like I don't think Cameron or Tyler or, or I would suggest you put your entire net worth into Bitcoin. Um, certainly for, for the three of us, we're, we're very exposed to it because it's the industry we work in and we understand and have been involved in for so long. But thinking about it like gold as a replacement for that store of value component in a portfolio, whether it's 5% or 3% or 10%, I think that's a useful way to uh, think about it in the portfolio context. Yeah, we, we joke, we don't have our skin in the game. We have our entire bodies in the game. Um, but for most people, I think, you know, uh, I think the right way to look at this asset is really a buy and hold for five, 10 years. That's really the way you want to trade into it. Um, I think that, and you have to be willing to accept some volatility, but that is really the opportunity, right? It's an emergent store of value. It's been around for a decade. It moves sort of like a, a new technology company might move, um, though less volatile than, than GameStop, for sure. <laughs> um, but it is, um, yeah, look, I think I think it has a meaningful place in a portfolio, and it's really a personal decision how much that is for, per person. But I think that there's there's real risk in, in not being part of this, this movement. It's really much more than just an asset. It's truly a movement as large as the internet 25 years ago. And imagine not having exposure to FANG um, and the amazing technology uh, companies that have driven tremendous growth and really show no signs of abating and probably will continue to deliver growth and value over the next decade. And so you don't wanna miss that story um, and there's certainly skeptics and folks like Warren Buffett um, who don't believe in the story, but because they don't have to. Um, you know, he's sort of in the twilight and he's made great bets on razor blade companies, but he's not, you know, um, it's not about seeing the future for him. And I think that um, 
this is really a case of what would you do if you were in the late 90s in Silicon Valley and could could go back in time and invest um, in the Amazons and things like that. That's what this is. So Tyler, you know, we've been talking about Bitcoin, uh, comparing it to, to gold as a store of value proposition. And I know that you don't know what every person who's watching this own personal financial situation is, so you can't provide independent advice. But generally speaking, are we to treat Bitcoin the same way we treat gold as investors? As Alex pointed out, three to 5%. If I've got 5% gold in my portfolio, am I swapping that out for Bitcoin? Well, it's definitely... Um a personal decision, right? In, in everyone's context, it's important. But what we're seeing is we are seeing uh, investors publicly go out and, and take positions. Uh, Paul Tudor Jones, the legendary hedge fund manager, I think he mentioned that he was putting something like at least 1%. Um, we're seeing companies like Tesla, Square, put uh, their treasury into Bitcoin. I don't have the full percentages. Um, but they're putting meaningful amounts uh, of cash. I actually do that. know, Tyler. I think I oh, think great. Tesla put about seven. If you look at the cash and equivalents at the end of 2020, um, that amount, they put about 7.5% of their treasury, those investable assets, into Bitcoin. Um, I don't know the percentages for Square, but but it, I think it was 50 million at least uh, for one one purchase. So these are material, meaningful amounts. Um, obviously, not every company is going to follow Tesla and do you know close to eight percent. Um, I think it's a company by company you know calculus and individually. But I don't think it's you know using the gold framework for allocation. It, it seems like a reasonable starting point. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, and we're, we're we're seeing that, and I think uh, depending on the person uh, or the institution and the risk appetite, people we're seeing people put a whole lot more because it's not a mature sort of value yet; it's an emergent sort of value uh, with potentially um, anywhere from a ten x or more return. So it's pretty pretty special. So investors, you know, they may look at the historical price increase of Bitcoin and, and believe they missed their chance. Um, I think, though, that if we look at it over the course of a decade, that volatility levels out a little bit. And you guys are talking about $500,000 a coin. That's your anticipation over the course of the next eight to 10 years? That's right. Um, yeah. So if you, you know, if you believe in that thesis, which we obviously strongly do, um, an entry point at fifty, sixty thousand dollars a coin is actually quite attractive. Again, you want to, you know, take a five to ten year horizon on on this asset. That's our firm belief. You don't want to really trade in and out of it. It doesn't make sense. You really want to buy and hold or hodl in the parlance of crypto. Um, and and really, that's that's a good trade even at fifty, sixty thousand dollars a coin. It's a good trade at a hundred thousand dollars a coin if you're taking that longer term viewpoint. And it's it's more de-risk. We're Gemini six years old, for example. Um, you know, we've been building a ton of uh, infrastructure in this space, so you're you're getting um, an asset that is more de-risk than than it was, you know, even three years ago when it had a previous all-time high at at twenty thousand dollars a coin. So what should uh, an advisor consider when their phone rings and a client calls them up and says, I'm thinking about Bitcoin? What are some of the conversations that need to take place for that advisor? Well, I think, well, I think the biggest question, yeah. oh, sorry, go ahead, Alex. Oh, yeah, sure. No, I was going to say, um, you know, uh, education and, and personal use is, is a precondition, I think, to, to investing. I think it's important that you know, investors never buy something just because they think it's going to go up without understanding what those fundamental drivers really are. So you need to do your own work. Um, there are some incredible resources. You know, um, Nine Points Digital Asset Group uh, is working on populating our page with useful and helpful things for people to learn about the space more broadly, not products, just the whole industry. And, uh, you know, there are other resources as well that people can, can seek out. Um, and, you know, I think the, the, the description was a good one, uh, which is that, you know, it is a personal decision for those investors. I mean, certain investors have different risk tolerances, they have different assets, uh, you know, they've got different time horizons. So everybody is different. Um, and so it's hard to say what the advisor should recommend as a weighting. Um, but, you know, I think it's clear from this discussion that 
we think Bitcoin is a, an important growing um, asset class that it's not going away. In fact, if anything, it's accelerating and that it should be part of a well-diversified portfolio. Yeah, I think the one thing I would stress is that advisors should be aware that there are safe ways to engage and get exposure to this asset. And I think um, some advisors aren't aware that there's actually those options like Nine Point Fund or a Gemini, um, where investors can get exposure in a safe, regulated, compliant manner. This is not the Wild West that it was you know, eight years ago when we got into the asset class. There are real products and financial institutions building in this space. Um, so that's really, I think, an important part of education. At Gemini, we also have a Cryptopedia section, which is a free knowledge resource center. If you want to learn more about Bitcoin, the blockchain, um, the inner workings security mod uh, model of the networks and things like that and mining and a lot of the 101 stuff, uh, we thought it was important to put that out there so people could understand the fundamental basics of crypto and Bitcoin. Because as Alex said, it's important to really understand what you're buying and what you're investing in, not just thinking, hey, I think this thing's going to go up or people told me. Um, really understanding what the technology is behind these assets and why it's so fundamentally in, important and a game changer. Tyler? Yeah, no, all good points. I echo everything that Alex and Tyler said. <laughs> Well, then let's talk about, um, Alex, you pointed out that there are three forces uh, at play here, community currencies, corporate payment systems, central bank digital currencies. They're on a, a collision course to global adoption. What do you mean by that? Well, I think that the next era of money is going to be digital. And there are various stakeholders that are wanting, going to want to stake their claim uh, for what that looks like. Um, governments are the monopolists currently for money. Um, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I'm just saying they have the monopoly on creating money or have until recently. And so naturally, they've got their eyes on the future of money. And so we see efforts in China in particular to launch its own digital currency. Um, I, I think that the U.S. and China would have different aims with, with that kind of a, a system. In China, it's obviously not only to make the system more efficient or inclusive, but it's also to increase uh, the ability for the state to uh, surveil what's going on inside the economy. Um, we're also seeing large companies uh, getting more and more interested in this area. MasterCard just announced that it wants to open up uh, its platform to C uh, CBDC, central bank digital currencies, but also stable coins. And companies like Facebook, and I expect others soon, will even want to announce their own version of that. So you're seeing companies, governments, and, and, um, and then I would say, sorry, the third category would be projects like Bitcoin, which emerged from you know, the civil society on the internet, from a community of users, individuals, companies, entrepreneurs, uh, different kinds of stakeholders with different aims, but all working together to build this collective resource. Those are three distinct categories with three distinct, you know, uh, sets of objectives. And, you know, they are inevitably on a collision course. I do believe that, you know, we're not going to be in a world 10 years from now where the U.S. dollar is the global reserve currency, but I also don't think it's going to be replaced by the Chinese uh, currency or, or any other currency created by a nation state. I think we're going to end up in a system that's a lot messier. Um, and, you know, that's reflecting of the messier world that we live in. And it's in that context that I think Bitcoin can really thrive as a check on government largesse and as a check on corporate, um, you know, uh, overreach into our lives. There's going to always be demand for another option. And Bitcoin is, you know, the clear winner in that respect. Cameron, what about regional regulation? You know, not all countries, not all regulators are going to be keen on cryptocurrency in the future, as Alex has just laid out. How much does regional regulation impact global adoption? So I think the, the, the largest financial hubs in the world have largely uh, regulated Bitcoin in a thoughtful manner. Um, we're regulated as a New York trust company. Gemini is um, on a federal level. Uh, Bitcoin is a commodity in the U.S. or viewed that way. Obviously, there's there's good regulation, pro-regulation for Bitcoin in Canada as well as Europe. And a lot of the sort of financial hubs that you'd expect, there's certain areas that are that don't like Bitcoin um, or are frightened by it. Um, but I don't think that that's critical for Bitcoin success. Uh, Quite the contrary. Um, so uh, overall, we're, we're really encouraged with the, the global 
uh, regulatory progress that's been really thoughtful towards this asset. And I think there's a really a low risk that that it sort of turns the other way or becomes somehow antagonistic towards Bitcoin. Um, it's just really too much of an opportunity. We're seeing New York, I think, has over 30 licensed companies in, in Bitcoin or crypto. Um, Singapore is trying to lead the the way in the APAC region. Um, you know, there's there's products trading on the TSX in Canada. The Ontario Securities um, Commission um, is regulating these products. So I, I think the it's really moving in the right direction, and it's only been positive. That's right. Um, pretty much every major financial hub has thoughtful regulation towards Bitcoin. So. U.S., Canada, U.K., Europe, uh, Singapore, South Korea, Japan, all the major hubs, um, you know, Bitcoin's made uh, the right enemies, um, you know, if you will, like Venezuela, Russia. Um, but Bitcoin really goes everywhere the Internet can go. So um, it makes it more challenging if a government wants to make it harder for. So in, in, in the U.S., you can download the Gemini app. You can onboard there. You can you can uh, open your E-Trade account or Schwab, go to the nine point fund. Um, in certain jurisdictions, it may be more challenging because you don't have those bridges in you know, via a closed-end fund on the TSX, like nine, uh, the Toronto Stock Exchange, or the ability to just download an app like, like Gemini. But ultimately, people, you know, Bitcoin is there, and to stop Bitcoin is to really stop the internet for those countries. So that's a pretty um, expensive gamble to really lock everything down um, the way a North Korea would. You really cut yourself off from the world. So, um, yeah. So no concerns about the Chinese throwing a monkey wrench into the works? Well, let me respond to that. So I think it's, it's interesting um, that the, the countries that were listed there, Venezuela, Russia, and you mentioned China, you know, the countries that aren't, aren't unambiguously uh, positive about Bitcoin um, are the ones who fear a loss of state control um, to some extent in the economy. In the developed world, in those Western economies, which are the major financial hubs, as both guys pointed out, um, the, the regulations are uh, clear. And I think this is important because I've now seen a few questions coming in from the audience to this effect. You know, what if the government shuts it down? Uh, what if central banks are worried about that monopoly being challenged? Um, the one thing that financial regulators really don't like is financial instability. Uh, we're at the point now where Bitcoin has basically reached escape velocity. It's a $1 trillion asset class. The broader digital asset world is one and a half times that size, maybe even larger, um, to do anything that would jeopardize the wealth creation that that, that um, this phenomenon has uh, enabled uh, would be very destabilizing. Uh, so to do anything to that effect, I think is unlikely. And all of the signs that we've seen so far point to, um, I, to one of the points made earlier, actually governments kind of moving aggressively to embrace this because they see an opportunity for their economy to be the center of this second era of the internet, the future of financial services. So in the US, you know, the new chairman of the SEC has taught a Bitcoin course at MIT. Um, the, you know, the CFTC, the big commodities regulator, um, uh, granted permission for a futures market years ago. This isn't a new thing. This is 2017. And uh, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, the big bank regulator, just enabled uh, and allowed for banks to custody uh, crypto assets on behalf of, of companies and individuals. And shortly thereafter, BNY Mellon, the biggest custodial bank in the world, and um, the oldest bank in the United States, announced that it was stepping into this market. So that, the OSC, we already mentioned, all of these different groups point to me to um, this uh, this um, period we're in as one of rapid embrace, uh, being rapidly embraced by, um, you know, regulators, governments, and other large institutions, because there's an opportunity here to, you know, um, rewrite the the old order of human affairs and create a new and, and more prosperous econ economy and, and financial system. And, uh, you know, individual uh, jurisdictions, countries have an opportunity to, to stake a claim, uh, you know, in that gold rush analogy to, you know, potentially uh, be the future center for, for that to occur. And certainly I'm happy to see that Canada and Toronto and Ontario is moving in that direction. But obviously being right next to the U.S. is a big benefit for us, too. Tyler, let me throw this one to you. You know, we see many institutions invest in Bitcoin as part of its treasury management strategy. Does this make sense? 
I think it does. I think it's an inflation hedge, right? They have all this cash and they're worried about what is the value of the dollar or the euros that I hold with all the money printing. So it's a it's simply a, a, a an inflation or hyperinflation hedge. But kind of going back to the the previous topic, I think you know go governments have embraced Bitcoin, blockchain technology, and crypto uh, writ large in all of these jurisdictions. I think you're going to see not just individuals buying Bitcoin. That was phase one. In institutions now, you're going to see central banks stacking Bitcoin at some point in the future. That's at least my prediction because they have been uh, stacking a lot of gold because they they know that they're printing all this money. And I think you're going to see one day there will be a central bank uh, actually stacking Bitcoin. So so with that, um, the, the, the long story short is it's we still feel like it's the second pitch of the first inning in terms of Bitcoin. Anybody else have a baseball metaphor? <laughs> or a cricket metaphor works. I don't know. <laughs> uh, there you go. It, it's Michael, fascinating to me that you know, we see public positions in the United States. What's that? I said, sure, you can throw us a few more curveballs where we can take uh, it. See, that's what I was looking for. Uh, let me throw this curveball at you. Public pensions in the United States, they're exposed to Bitcoin via fund managers. That seems like a huge stamp of approval, particularly um, broadly speaking within the investment community, let alone within the institutions. Yeah, this is definitely not a softball question, um, but <laughs> I think that, um, um, I think, yeah, I think I think pension funds have implicitly been uh, getting crypto exposure through venture funds and thing and the like for actually quite some time. It's just not talked about a lot. Um, and part of it's also they're not necessarily always set up to express a viewpoint through owning commodities or, or futures um, directly. And so that's the way they have to uh, express their, their point of view. Um, but I think that's true. And to Tyler's other point, earlier point, I, I think we're going to see central banks start to dabble and there's going to be um, an innovative forward looking one or, or sovereign wealth fund that does it in a in a very big way. And, and I think we're going to look back at this moment and, and look at uh, crypto sort of regulation and and really the, the countries that don't sort of promote the growth of these industries in this this space, it's like the equivalent of not promoting like connectivity during the early days of the internet and having, you know, your, 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 um, you know, citizens not really connected into the information age. It just doesn't make any sense. The amount of value and potential economic output is, is really tremendous and, and no, no, uh, country really wants to be left behind. And I think it's only going to be excel accelerating more and more. Um, so, so I think that, um, you know, it's going to be, I think there's going to be a lot more tailwinds pushing um, for adoption and growth and, and regulating and building businesses in this space. All right, we've got about 15 minutes left of your time, gentlemen. So let me uh, throw some questions from the audience at you here. Uh, this one here points out the Bitcoin mining has come under fire lately, and there are claims that it uses more electricity annually than Argentina as countries such as China and others try to clamp down on carbon emissions and take measures towards curbing climate change. How do you feel this will impact Bitcoin demand as it is viewed as an energy hoarding currency, not environmentally friendly? Uh, well, I've, I have a pretty so, strong opinion on this. So I'll ahead. start and then go ahead, um, Alex. We'll, we'll, we'll tag team it. So um, the mining process is what they're, what they're referring to, the process of validating and securing the network. And it does take energy to do that, but um, it performs an incredibly useful service. It secures a network that's over a trillion dollars in value and clears uh, more transaction value per day than most credit card networks. Um, but also the energy itself that is going into the network uh, comes, uh, the vast majority of it comes from renewable sources. And there's a couple of you know, basic economic reasons for that. Mining is very competitive. The biggest variable cost that goes into mining is energy. So most miners locate in a place where energy is free. That means effectively free. That means uh, co-locating near geothermal, near hydroelectric, basically where energy is already being generated uh, from those different sources. Um, and where it's being harnessed at low to no fees for the purpose of Bitcoin mining. So the net effect 
there is no the, the net carbon increase is uh, not nearly as large as you might expect. It's maybe uh, a quarter or a fifth of the size. Um, but longer term, you know, I think it's important for the Bitcoin network that they continue that ex that that miners and others continue that acceleration towards um, renewable sources. And I think for for our, from our perspective, you know, um, as an asset management firm, this is something that people do ask questions about. So it's incumbent on us to explain and educate and also maybe to come up with some creative solutions as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are all really great points. I, I think the energy consumption conversation really can't be viewed in isolation. Um, I think to have like a meaningful conversation on it, we need to understand what is the energy consumption of, of the internet and what is the energy consumption of the financial system? Um, you know, that could be uh, magnitudes larger than Bitcoin, even though Bitcoin is the size of Argentina. And if Bitcoin ultimately is a more efficient system, uh, and you look at DeFi, which is really building um, pieces of the financial system in a permissionless manner, and there's tremendous savings there and reduced friction, it actually could be really net um, positive in terms of carbon emissions and whatnot. So I think it's really easy to sort of just focus on the Bitcoin network, but let's, let's have a larger conversation on the financial system and the savings that perhaps Bitcoin is, is bringing and DeFi and other sort of crypto projects to that space longer term. And I think that's what's sort of missing from the current conversation. Yep, um, definitely a good point. Um, so Bitcoin, as we said, is open source, so it can evolve. Um, the mining algorithm may not necessarily, ha doesn't have to be what it is um, in the future. But um, it it is one of the greatest inventions to personal freedom as the printing press and the computer itself. Um, and, you know, the computer um, has a much bigger uh, smartphones carbon footprint than the typewriter. Electricity has a much bigger carbon footprint, I believe, than candles. So sometimes um, innovation is so important um, for society that it deems uh, that trade-off worthwhile. All right, let, let me throw this one at you as well, uh, Tyler, then. Uh, you know, Anton is writing in asking, what about alternative coins, such as Ethereum or Litecoin? Why Bitcoin? Yeah, uh, those are the great question. Um, Bitcoin's generally a starting point because it was the first um, cryptocurrency as we know it. And we look at Bitcoin as gold 2.0, um, sort of the, the store of value. Um, but there's also very exciting other cryptocurrency networks called Ethereum, which is basically the world's decentralized operating system. If you think of Amazon cloud services, um, but instead of opening an account with Amazon that controls all the cloud computing and putting your credit card to buy compute power, um, you can actually run your application on the Ethereum network that like Bitcoin, it's not controlled by a company, there's no CEO, there's no headquarters. Um, it's credibly neutral, permissionless platform and network to build uh, applications with smart contracts on. And the way you purchase computing power of the Ethereum network is not with your credit card, but by using its native currency, Ether. So if Bitcoin is like digital gold, Ether is very much like digital oil. And I think these are two really good starting places for people to uh, start their education on crypto um, because they're they're two of the oldest. They have some of the largest communities. Uh, they're well proven out. They have tremendous technological merit. So um, I'm a big fan of, I definitely encourage people who are coming to this space to, to look at both Bitcoin and Ethereum um, as they're coming up to speed and doing their learning. Cameron, we got Dan here writing in asking, how sound is the method used to store Bitcoin from being hacked and therefore stolen? It really depends on, on the company that's storing it. Um, Gemini is regulated as a New York trust company. Um, we've taken a security first mindset since day one. Um, Tyler and I use it ourselves to store crypto. Um, and we've got a track record and, and many billions of dollars of uh, assets under under custody. 
including the the assets in Nine Point. Um, so we believe, you know, we built uh, a world class custodial infrastructure, but you have to obviously choose companies that have built trust and 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 are regulated in in the space. And that's one of the challenges, especially in the early days. There really wasn't options like Gemini or funds like Nine Point to to purchase and own Bitcoin through. All right, looking through some more questions here. Uh, we were joking off the top about whether or not you're going to bid on uh, Dorsey's uh, first tweet over there at Twitter. Um, this one asks, how will NFTs and current digital art differentiate in the new ecosystem? What will be the use cases other than collecting them for digital art NFTs against, say, let's say, a JPEG that has the same art? Yeah, well, one way to think about so it is, is not not as the art itself, but as the the signature for the art. Um, basically, you know, you can have a you know a replica of the Mona Lisa hanging in your house, and you can buy them. They're like five grand. You can have a good painter do that, but it's not worth half a billion dollars, right? Or however, it's priceless, probably. Um, you know, I'm only using the most recent Da Vinci sale as a benchmark there. Um, the the um, the reality is that you know, going back to what was said earlier. Bitcoin create a digital scarcity for money and NFTs create digital scarcity for other kinds of assets that are more unique. You know, Bitcoin is fungible in the sense that every Bitcoin is alike in what it costs and what it can do. But uh, most NFTs are, or almost all NFTs are, are different in some respect. Um, so there is, you know, potential for to use them as a way to, um, or sorry, not potential, the, the way they're being used today uh, is primarily as a, you know, a way to show scarcity for collectibles, artwork, you know, trading cards. There's a thing called NBA Top Shots is a very good example of that. Longer term, though, I think they could become um, the, the basis for um, protecting and enforcing copyright potentially as a way to prove attestation that basically the thing that is created is something that belongs to a specific artist and could, um, through the use of a smart contract, basically a self-executing piece of code, actually enable a payment as well to the person who created it. So, you know, a lot of um, innovation things happen uh, at the beginning are, are silly and fun. Silly and fun is a good thing. You know, the internet was used mostly for cat videos and maybe some other illicit stuff in the early days and and nfts today are being used for people to share art and you know be parts of communities and talk about sports and you know invest in their favorite you know uh, creators longer term though i think it could be much more profound than that okay i've got a question here uh, for you cameron from gordon um talking essentially about first mover advantage we think back to netscape that's not the web browser we use anymore. Um, we think about a whole bunch of different technologies that started off as being the leaders and then ended up being the followers. He says, typically when a new technology emerges, the first big company has historically been passed over by newer entrants. How does Bitcoin avoid that fate? So I think it's important to note that Bitcoin is really a network. And as more people adopt it, that network increases in value value uh, along the lines of Metcalf's law, which is N squared, N being the number of nodes or participants in the network. You look no further than a network like Facebook. It's got you know billions of nodes or people that are part of that network, which gives it tremendous value. And so every day that Bitcoin sort of survives and is still the leader in the store of value quadrant, the stronger it gets. And it's very hard to sort of dethrone. At this point, it's it's Bitcoins to lose. And money is, you know, it is the ultimate social network, really. Um, and so we think that, um, you know, it's of course, there could be challengers, but the, the community around Bitcoin, the developer community, the people who use Bitcoin, the investors, they're all sort of rooting for Bitcoin. And it's an incredibly vibrant community. I think it's important to note that Bitcoin is not competing with Ethereum. They're solving different problems. They have different development communities. Um, so for a store of value to compete with, or a project to compete with Bitcoin, they'd have to you know, um, make up a lot of time over the past 10 years um, and a lot of development and a lot of uh, sort of adoption. And I think that's very challenging at this point in the game. Yeah, I think I think first mover advantage and network effects are so much stronger when you deal with networks. Um, I wouldn't consider Netscape a network, actually, um, but more a first mover application. But even if you look at the Internet itself, many of the, the plumbing, the plumbing, the protocols of it, which aren't perfect, but were there first, 
are still, um, you know, the plumbing of the internet itself. So the TCP IP suite is what I'm talking about. And uh, Bitcoin's done a great job of, of being gold 2.0. It's, it's the oldest. It's been around at least now um, 11 years. And it's and it really the analogy is is Facebook, right, or Twitter, how hard those are to unseat once they get out there and they do a good enough job. Um, there was a time when everybody was chasing Facebook. Um, and Google being a publicly traded company at that point at that point in time was much larger. And they actually tried a social network um, that, that didn't work and, and others did as well. Um, so once you get the product market fit right enough, it's sort of a, it's very much um, a, a network to, to lose. Any final thoughts on that, Alex? Um, no. Well, I will have one final thought, which is someone said, if you can create an infinite number of new cryptocurrencies, not new Bitcoins, just new vert, like different kinds of currencies, doesn't that dilute Bitcoin? And, and it doesn't, you know, and it's to the point, the, all the points that have just been made, which is that, you know, if you've got Facebook and a million imitators launch competing social networks, it could mean some competition on the margin, but it's very un hard to unseat those network effects. And, you know, the, the easiest, you know, proof is in the, in the pudding itself, which is that, you know, Bitcoin's been around for 12 years. In that period of time, there have been thousands of new coins. Some of them are really interesting and extremely useful uh, and are, I think, here to stay like Ethereum, and some of them are not. Um, but either way, the proliferation and the growth and value of the world of digital assets has had no impact, no, ne no negative impact on Bitcoin. In fact, it's probably had a positive impact, which is to say that, you know, this is not a zero-sum game. The pie is growing. The more use cases there are for digital assets, the more people will engage with them, the more uh, they will want to download a wallet and use these um, services and assets. And all of that is net beneficial to Bitcoin. It's actually not, it's the opposite of being dilutive. That's a really, really good point. I mean, if you look at Netflix, right, the way they can deliver so much streaming content is on the Amazon Web Services infrastructure, right? And so the better Amazon does with their technology, the better Netflix can deliver their product to other people. So it's really accretive. It's not, um, this is not a, a sort of zero sum finite world. Really, all these projects are pushing each other to get better. Um, and so we think it's all you know net positive on that point. All right, Cameron, Tyler, before we let you go, uh, congrats on sponsoring the 192-year-old boat race between Oxford and Cambridge. Uh, Gemini's involvement is being called the highest profile partnership between a crypto company and a UK sport. Any advice for the rowers following your own uh, Olympic experience? Yeah, no, we're, we're super excited to sponsor the event. And uh, what we found is that, like, Perseverance and conviction in, in athletics and sports um, is very important in that arena as well as the startup arena and in the frontier of a new asset class like crypto. So um, wish the competitors best of luck. We hope that Oxford wins, of course. Um, and there's usually some Canadians in the event. So uh, it's it's got good representation from, from Canada and North America often. Yeah, we're excited. I think the I think the last sponsor was was maybe Bank of New York Mellon Boney, uh, which is either the oldest um, uh, company in in America in, in in the United States, or it's the second oldest. I think State Street and Boney um, jockey for that position. Um, so it's really cool to see crypto uh, maturing. Bitcoin maturing and actually a crypto company like Gemini now uh, being the next sponsor. So I would like to say thank you very much for your time. Thank our guests, Tyler and Cameron Winklevoss, the founders of Winklevoss Capital Management and of the Gemini Trust, of course, leading digital currency in exchange, exchange and custodian. Also, Alex Tapscott, thank you as well, managing director of the digital assets group at Nine Point Partners. Thank you for your time, gentlemen. My pleasure. Thanks. And uh, I'll just say thanks, thanks to everyone. Tyler and Cameron um, for, for you know, joining us for this discu discussion. Uh, lucid, insightful commentary. Uh, Nine Points delighted to be partnered with Gemini. Um, you know, I first met Tyler and Cameron in 2015, uh, you know, when the value of Bitcoin, Bitcoin would barely crack the S&P 500. 
as a you know as a constituent and they were way ahead of the curve in building their company and it's great to finally find an opportunity to do business with them it's been a real pleasure so uh, we look forward to more collaborations with them in the future and michael just a shout out to you that was excellent uh, moderating um you know very professional consummate pro as usual so thank you Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for that, gentlemen. And in January, of course, Nine Point Partners launched the Bitcoin Trust, ticker symbol BITC.U and BITC.UN. It is planning a conversion to an ETF in and around May, which will bring it up to its nav. If you're interested in getting exposure to Bitcoin, you can find out more about the Nine Point Bitcoin Trust at ninepoint.com. Again, thank you uh, for joining us and thank you for your questions as well for those who submitted them. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Stay healthy, stay safe.